Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And today's episode, we are leaning heavily into the freedom element. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become financially independent or what it'd be like to be time rich and not have to worry about going back? to work. Well, this is really the topic of today's episode and I was really lucky to be able to spend a bit of time with the author Lacey Filipich. She's also a TEDx speaker. She's got a she's got a money school which is the name of her book but also the name of her business and it's all about teaching people how to become financially independent and time rich. So we talk all about that. We talk about Lacey's journey, uh, how she kind of got started in, in her and how her financial story and how she kind of navigated that pathway to, to become financially independent in her early 30s. We also talked about, you know, stuff, we talked about the FIRE movement, so financially independent, retire early, whether you have to, you know, live like a monk to try and achieve financial independence or whether you can spend on things and how to navigate that. We even talked about things like the dichotomy of mortality when when it sometimes feels so daunting to try and even think of the future. We, we navigated all of that kind of stuff. We talked about good debt versus bad debt. We talked about mini retirements. We talked a lot about property as well um, because Lacey takes a view uh, of across multiple asset classes and I think that her book's been really impactful in a way that it addresses a variety of different ways that you can achieve financial independence. Um, but we had a really good chat about property in this podcast, uh, which I think you'll find very beneficial and I'm sure you're going to resonate with that. Uh, we kind of touched on it like, is financial independence only for is only for rich people basically? And we kind of dispelled that myth and made sure that it was it's possible for anyone to do this. So there was a lot of gold in there. We even talked about stuff like yield versus growth and all kinds of cool stuff. So I know that you're going to get a lot out of this. Like it really doesn't matter whether you are just starting your personal wealth journey or whether you're an experienced investor or whether you're a business owner or an entrepreneur thinking, okay, how do I how do I start to, you know, build something outside of my business so I don't get stuck on a treadmill? Everything we talk about today is going to resonate well with you if you have a desire to be in autonomous control over your own destiny and to be able to do what you want, when you want, with who you want all of that kind of stuff. So if, if you do want to do that, then I highly suggest you check out this uh, episode. Now, we talked a lot about um, Lacey's book, Money School, in the podcast. Um, there's a link in the show notes to Lacey's website, moneyschool.org.au. And of course, if you want to chat to us about how we can help you to you know, progress your own personal wealth journey towards a financial independence goal using real estate specifically, then you can reach out to us just by heading to www.dashdot.com.au or alternatively heading to theinvestorlab.com.au as well. And on theinvestorlab.com.au, you will also find heaps of free resources and guides that will give you the information you need to be able to really get started. And also on top of that, you'll be able to get a copy of my book, which is which we talk about a little bit in this podcast as well. And that's Limitless, The Renegade's Guide to Building Wealth Through Property. There's a lot to unpack there. I, and I don't want to dra drag this on for too long, but I, I was really delighted to be able to have this conversation. And, you know, this I've been reading Lacey's book for a little while now, and um, I know that you're going to enjoy this kind of stuff too. So without further ado, let's get stuck into it. And of course, if you enjoy this, which I know you will, then please share this with somebody else. Just take a minute out of your, out of your day. Share this with a friend, share this with a family member, share this with someone that you want to gift the give the gift of financial freedom to. Share this with them and hopefully that will inspire them to accelerate or start their financial independence journey too. Without further ado, let's get stuck into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. And today I am joined by a very, very, very special guest. I'm actually really excited uh, to be having this conversation. I am going to be chatting with a, a successful, I'm going to go a successful author of Money School and also an, an inspired educator. And, you know, I would, say, I would even go say a financial independence influencer by the name of Lacey Philippic. Lacey, welcome to the Investor Lab. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, I just want to point out that, um, so when I invited you to come on to the, the podcast, I'd watched a TED Talk. Now, I'm going to put a link to the, to the TED Talk down in the show notes so that people can check it out. That's had about nearly 700,000 views so far, which is pretty good. 
Yeah, and, um, kind of amazing. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy, right? Yeah. So mm. but I, I hadn't actually started reading your book. I had it on, I'd ordered it, but I hadn't actually started reading it. Now, now I'm in Sydney. You're in Perth. What time is it in Perth right now? Uh, 7.30 in the morning, something so, like that, I think, yeah. So unbe- unbeknownst to me, in the first couple of chapters, you specifically talk about how you've designed a life so you don't have to wake up early. And oh my God, I felt so, I felt so bad. <laughs> you know what? I don't mind it. Honestly, I don't mind it occasionally. But like, I, it's actually nice. This morning was beautiful and quiet. And my children were asleep. I got to enjoy my house and have a cup of tea. You know, like there's Every now and then's fine. Don't worry. Don't feel bad, Goose. It's uh, it's more the whole, you know, that um, it's Friday morning, your alarm's gone off for the fifth day of the week, and you're like, oh, please let it end. That's it's the, the choice, right? It's the choice. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. It's, it's the it's the choice that you can do it if you want, but you don't have to, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I I we've got a lot to talk about, and uh, we've I've got a lot of questions, and I know this is going to be super impact impactful. But why don't we just kind of why don't we just kind of start all the way back at the start? I've been reading your book. I know I've gotten to know who you are through the through the through the narrative in in the book, but a lot of other people have, will have no idea who you are or what um, you're all about and what Money School is. So why don't you just give us a little mm-hmm. bit of a backstory? Tell us a little bit about who you are, why you're here, and what you're doing. Great. Well, I, I think I'm a little bit common in the fire community in that I'm an engineer, but a little bit unusual in the financial education sphere in that I'm an engineer. Um, but basically, I started out really liking maths and had a traditional career in engineering. But uh, alongside studying um, engineering and practicing, going out into mining is where I ended up going, which might upset a few people, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I also, alongside that, had my mum and my dad teaching me about money. And I like to say my parents' story is like a rich mum, poor dad story, <laughs> even though my dad earned a lot more than my mum. My mum was really sensible and conservative with her money. And um, even though she was effectively the one paying for most of our upbringing since my parents divorced, um, she managed to become financially independent when she was 63, whereas my dad um, will be living on the pension, um, which has been really interesting. I love them both, but I got to see both examples. And I guess that's why I got interested in money. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it was fascinating, you know. So I say, you know, mum taught me what to do, dad taught me what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was good to see that juxtaposition. But um, I got really interested in money when I was about 10. And I guess that was a couple of years after my parents had divorced. And I was starting to think a bit more about money because mum was talking about it more, you know. Like I think when they were together, maybe the parents, you know, they just talked amongst each other. But I was actually a bit of a sounding board for my mum about prioritization mm. at times, even as a young kid. And so at 10 years old, I started my first business. And ended up with um, five of my friends as employees, which was pretty entertaining. Um, and uh, my mum was asking me on my first market what I was going to do with the money and she explained compound interest to me because um, I talked about maybe spending. She said, you know, if you put it in the bank, the bank will give you more money and, and, and it'll grow from there and that money makes more money. And I was like, what? Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and um, that's where I first learned about the power of money and I guess it started from there. And that little seed that was planted, and I say this to lots of parents because lots of people go, oh, how do I teach my kid about money? All It's actually not about long lectures. If you can plant a few little seeds, you'll be surprised how quickly they take root and grow. But that's, the, I guess, the moment I credit with um, me getting very excited about money and being interested in making my money work for me. And so that's really been the theme of my life. As I was studying at university, I started investing in my second year of uni, which everyone thought was insane. Investing everyone in else was renting rooms. Um, property. Bought my first property. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, that's that's 19 years ago now. <laughs> it's a bit scary. Um, a very different environment, but still I did what I think a lot of young people can do, which is buy a small, I bought a little apartment, two bedroom, one bathroom, and I rented out the second room. And including like power, phone bill, water, my shortfall, and, and plus the mortgage, um, my shortfall was about $40 a week, whereas you would have rented a room for about $100 a week. So um, it, it was, it's a, a system that anyone I think could use, you know, this idea of, you know, you live in it and then you rent out a room if you're young and you're willing to share. Um, so that's where it started. And I kept investing in property and then got into shares. And then um, before I knew it, I was financially independent um, and had the choice about whether to work or not, which was great. That's that's awesome. Okay. So there's a couple of things. There's so much to unpack there. Okay. So um, just a little side note. So that kind of strategy where you uh, invested in a property, lived in it, rented out part of it, that's what some people in like the, the bigger pockets community in, in the in the US, they're like big real estate investors, they would call that kind of thing house hacking. Are you familiar with that yeah. term? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great term. And, um, you know, and some other people talk about rent vesting, you know, that idea of 
buy mm-hmm. an investment property and else elsewhere. There's lots of, um, I guess, ways you can make it work for you. That was, I'm really glad I did it. I mean, just, just really luck and timing um, on my side to get in there before we had a big property boom in Brisbane. I got in there like six months ahead of that. Um, which you didn't know it was coming, right? Like I didn't yeah. know that was going to happen. I was just excited that interest rates were 5.1% back then. I can't yeah. believe I'm now looking at interest rates starting with twos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Perspective's yeah. a very interesting thing, right? You know, so yeah. I, mean, I remember growing up, my parents, I think the, I remember having conversations around the, the house or at least I remember it being a thing that they were like 17% and it was like, whoa. Oh. You know? And they're like a credit card, right? Just like buying a house on a credit card. I know, oh. it's crazy. Yeah, they still made it work, you know, like. Yeah. Okay. Back, oh, uh, your so your when did you when did you get when did you get when did you become when did you have this like moment where you were like I'm financially free and was it was like what was what was that experience like? Well, it was one of these ones that creeps up on you, and I guess right. um, if you when people watch my TEDx talk, they'll realize I had a bit of a life moment in my mid to late twenties where I sort of went, "This is insane! I don't want to live um, like climbing the corporate ladder anymore." So I'd already had that realization. And, and become more aware of the fact that I, my investments were starting to grow. And I hadn't, hadn't set out necessarily to say, I want financial independence and I want the choice to work. I just knew I wanted my money to work for me and I hated waste. <laughs> but when um, we had our first child, I was 30 years old and um, I had the choice about whether I needed to go back to work or not. And I was sitting there thinking about, oh, well, what can I do? Because I was a contractor at that point, so I didn't have maternity leave. I was like, oh, hey, my rent and my dividends actually cover my living costs. Um, it's not something that I had been consciously focused on because I had been putting all of my stuff back into reinvesting, like paying down debt off properties um, and buying more shares. And I just kind of had it ticking over and it wasn't something, like I was obviously interested in investing, so I paid attention to it, but I, I hadn't really thought about how much money I was making as a what we would call a passive income. I mean, it's never passive in that you just ignore it, right? But Yeah. <laughs> um, but it you're sounds, not spending time. <laughs> it sounds a little funny. Like you, you hadn't, yeah. you hadn't noticed that you'd actually, you'd accidentally built up a, uh, a basically a salary. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I hadn't <laughs> thought of it, the power of it to be a salary necessarily. Uh, I had okay. always, I knew I wanted the the independence of like, well, this is my risk aversion. You, engineers, we're naturally risk averse, right? We spend so much time looking at risk. It's just what happens. And I was like, it would be really good to have this passive income and um, and to then have a choice if you get made redundant or if you have a family or anything like that. I remember thinking those things when I was young and making my decisions uh, about what to invest in. But yeah, I hadn't really realized what I'd built up to, like how much income I was getting because I was reinvesting it all. It's not something that it was front of mind for me. But yeah, when I had my first child and I was sitting at home going, well, well, you know, after I got some sleep, <laughs> um, I was thinking about when I'd go back to work and then I realised I didn't have to and that was quite cool, um, quite exciting. And I'd already it been interested cool. in fun. But yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it's a nice surprise, right? Like I know it sounds like an accident. It's just that I hadn't, <laughs> like it was definitely deliberate strategy, investing and creating this income. It was just that I hadn't really thought about the impact it could have until I had a baby in my arms. And I was like, yeah. oh, I don't have to go back. And, of course, the work I had been doing, I'd been doing a lot of flying a lot of moving away. We'd lived in America. I was at one point flying to and from Perth to Queensland, you know, six flights a week. Um, and I was like, I don't really want to do that with a baby. And I was like, oh, I don't have to. Oh, oh, cool. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it was it was really good. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm glad. I'm very grateful to past Lacey. Well done, past Lacey, um, for making those decisions. And it certainly was a wonderful moment to have that realisation. Nice, nice. Okay, so you started. So you started your first business when you were ten, in, yeah. and you had five employees, which I got to say is more than most um, business owners ever get to because they never. So, so congratulations on having been a successful entrepreneur at such an early age. Um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and then, so okay, cool. And then, and then your your mum planted the seeds about like, hey, you know, you know, hey, there's actually smarter ways of of using your money, and you can compound it. I, I, I one of the biggest things is I wish I'd learned about compound interest when I was younger. And oh, yeah. the, the power and the impact of compounding didn't really hit me until it was, like, honestly, it was only a few years ago. And I was like, yeah, right. whoa, hang on a second. Why didn't I know this when, why didn't I know this when I was 20? Like, you know, so, yeah. um, so, okay, cool. And then, and then you went and, so you did engineering, you went and started working in the, in the resources sector, all of that kind of stuff. You mentioned at the start fire. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to explain what fire is? I know what it is, but let's just get let's go there. Explain what fire is, and doesn't that doesn't doesn't living that kind of lifestyle mean you have to live like a monk? Like, basically, did you just did you have a really 
Did you just eat? Did you just eat soup? Like water, like water soup for till you were like thirty, and then you're financially. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So look, that's a there are so first of all, fire financially independent retiring early. Catchy acronym. It's that concept of you do basically what we've just talked about. You know, build up your assets to a point where your income from the assets covers your living costs. And of course, there's two factors that determine how quickly you get there. First of all, how much you can accumulate, which mm. is related to how much you save and your income. Right, like mm-hmm. two things. Um, and then um, it's also about time, you know, and and what you've chosen to invest in, right? So that's where that compounding makes a big difference. Yep. Um, and everyone's got a different number, but people talk about their fire number, and you, so you'll have an assets amount that you want, and um, basically the income of that. So that could be income from, you know, cash in, in the bank. You know, you talk about our parents; they used to get fifteen percent interest on their cash. <laughs> you know, that was an option yeah. back in the day. Not right now. No. Um, well, you need a lot more, let's put it that way, about, you know, 10 to 15 times more capital to get the same kind of income. Anyway, um, uh, you know, bonds, rent um, from properties, you can have uh, dividends from shares, right? So people go about it lots of different ways. Um, I think there's a, a tendency for people to hear retire early and think, oh, well, that means you just sit on a beach drinking pina coladas. Look, I've never, I don't know anyone who got to that point and stopped working. You would be amazed how many people who are still in the workforce, still doing the same job, who are financially independent. Um, retiring early is optional, and that's why I prefer to talk about it being time rich. It's just you get to choose how you spend your time. That could be working in your current job. Um, that could be taking a different job. It could be mini retirements. It could be sitting on the beach drinking pina coladas. But yeah, people hear that retiring early bit and get quite bogged down in it, um, which I find a bit frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, it's an, uh, it's an interesting yeah. one. It's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because some people do say so. So, so yeah, some some people do go. Well, what? Like, well, and then what? And then what? It's like, well, yeah. you might actually still, if like, if you're a business owner or if you inspired in your career or whatever the case may be, you just keep doing it if you want. Yeah. It's, and it's totally up to you. It's your the choice. ability to decide. So, yeah, it's the ability to exactly. decide. Okay. Yeah. So, you're, so, so that's you're, how that goes. Yeah. yeah. So you're all about fitter, right? Fitter. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. fighter, whichever you like, or F I T R. Yeah. As um. Yeah. You can pick. It's really annoying, isn't it? Like it looks. I, I find it quite. Um, I loved coming up with an acronym because like, like, I'm like the the least fit person you'll probably meet. So it felt great. It felt I like really fitter because then it's like you can get financially fitter, right? It's yeah, like, exactly. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get fitter. Yeah. Okay, yeah, awesome. Penguin made me read out F I T R every time in the book, just so you know, for the audio book, <laughs> it was pretty funny. But the the living like a monk bit is an interesting yeah. one, right? Because people hear about getting to financial independence and they just want to get there as quickly as they can, which I admire. And the, as I said, it's a function of time, but also how much comes in and how much goes out. And so one of the quickest ways for average people who are like on a standard income to get there is to live like a monk and save a lot. So it's, oh, there's people in the fire community who, who accurately measure their savings to like cents, um, really care about it. They will save, you know, 70, 80. Some of them get close to 90% of the income they save and then they live on the remainder. And they do these things like house hacking or they, um, you know, find ways to live really cheaply. And that is certainly an option. It's not the way I went, but I, I am inherently, I talk about being cheap to run. I know people don't like the phrase cheap, but like I don't like cars and I don't like clothes and I don't like shoes and, well, they're very functional. I need them, but they don't do it for me. So I don't spend a lot of money on them, mm. but I do have the few things that I do love. I love wine, I love food, and I love travel. And so I have spent plenty of money on those things because they give me the most happiness, but I don't frivolously waste money on things that I don't need or don't want. And that's that prioritisation. It's just been, I guess it's like, you know, growing up with my mother who could make a dollar stretch to what felt like 10, like she's a magician with money. I just realised there were things that people spent money on that I didn't think were high priorities and what a waste. You know, I had to spend time to earn that money. Why would I just let it leave? So... I don't feel like I had a monk lifestyle, but certainly there'd be people, like if you came to my house, I would say two-thirds of my furniture is hand-me-down or curbside collection because I just don't care. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's functional and it's clean and I'm not going to go to Ikea or to any of those other places and buy something new when there's something perfectly functional. It's just not my thing. But if we're going on a holiday, I will drop a couple of hundred bucks on a dinner with no problems. I, uh, I'll buy a nice bottle of wine. I'll treat my kids to something really cool like that's my high priority area yeah. to spend in. So I think the prioritization is more important. Yeah, yeah. Experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's what does but, it for me now. And look, some people love cars. So fine, buy a car, but don't buy everything else. <laughs> like, yeah. Pick the things. Pick the few things that you really care about and spend money on them. That's, I think, 
a more satisfying way to get to fire. It might take you a bit longer, mm. but hey, mate, you might go under a bus. So don't avoid uh, joy out of your life completely. <laughs> yeah, totally. I've, I've recently been going on that journey as well and go, actually, like, what is it? Well, actually, you know, for me, it's, for me, it's, it's like books, you know, like reading. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm an addict too. Like I have my bookshelves. Yeah, then my yeah. two read pile. It's a good yeah. one to spend money on. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like, yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, really, it's like a, the gym, groceries, some books. Like, what have I spent all my money on? And I was like, <laughs> I really had to think about it. I was like, wow, there's a lot of crap. There's a little, really a lot of crap in there. So, yeah, it sneaks in too, right? Like, right, totally. you start spending it and then you go, uh, it was all right for the first month. Like, how many subscriptions? I found subscriptions on my credit card before. I'm like, what is this? You've got to remember to cancel them. You've got to be conscious sometimes and do a bit of a, you know, a purge, if you like. Totally. And it's also, <laughs> there's also a really interesting, like, there's a diminishing return on things, right? So, yeah. and that's, I think, a big, uh, something that a lot of people miss. You know, like, if you mm. move into a, like, a really nice apartment and it's costing you a lot of money and all of that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, that's great for the first month. The second month, it won't be as exciting. And the third month, it won't be as exciting. And at the end of the day, then you're just going to be like, well, it's a box that I'm in. And, uh, could it be cheaper? Now, yeah. you talked to, you mentioned there like some people in the fire community are, are saving like 90% of their income. And I, yeah. I know a lot of people might be wondering is, is this, is financial independence really, and it is saving like, because a lot of people don't feel like they can save that much money, right? I know 90% mm. is an, an edge case, but even if it's 50, <laughs> yeah. right? A lot of people <laughs> yeah. don't feel like they can do that. It, it, starts to make it sound like achieving financial independence and becoming time rich is something for only people only for people who are cash rich yeah is that, is that the case or is this is this only for for people who are earning a high income or is how does this how does this apply look i think the concepts can apply for no matter what your income is like i've been saving 50 percent of everything i've ever earned since i was 10 and so like one year i earned about a thousand dollars I saved half of it. <laughs> um, you, I lived you, do at home. I little, have... you do realize that's really nuts, right? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But you know, the thing that happened by doing that as a child is it's such a habit. I don't even think about it. Yeah. So in the times when I was, you know, when I was a graduate engineer, I came out into the workforce, and my first job was fifty-four thousand dollars a year, and I'd gone from fifteen grand a year that I had earned as a student, which is working on holidays and, um, you know, before and after uni. Um, and that was a lot in those days, but that's what I was earning, about 15 grand a year to 54 grand a year. I still saved half, both times, you know, half of 15 grand after tax and then half of 54. It's just, it's it's such a habit that I don't even think about it. Like it just happens. And so uh, the question is going to be for a lot of people is how much can you save? Now, for some people, it's going to be nothing because you're on the bones of your bum right now. And that's okay. Don't beat yourself up. But if you can build up a habit then it's easier to add more. So even if you're only saving a dollar a week, you get that sort of habit of doing it. Um, and then when you have more money, you can save more. And then it's really about a motivator for speed. I'm just lucky that it happened when I was young and that I don't even think about it. Like even now today, I don't even think about saving half of everything that comes in. It just happens. <laughs> you know, like I, it's automated. The systems work. I don't have to consciously think about it. If you can get to that point, life's a lot easier, but it takes time to build that up. Even if you start off then edging it up towards 10% and 20%, then that's great. It's still better than nothing, right? You're still getting closer. And if you get excited about the speed with which you want to get to financial independence, that's when you find that motivation, that dangling carrot um, is really exciting for people. And then they do really work towards saving more. But, I mean, I look at my mum. So I out-earned her in my third year out of university. She never earned a lot of money. She's a single parent raising two girls. Um, she started investing when she was 49. Um, she got to financial independence at 63, just plodding along, paying for having two children at home, you know, through her 40s. She couldn't save at that point because we were expensive because we're kids, um, you know, relatively speaking. I guess when I think back now, it's not actually that expensive now that I've got kids, but, you know, it is a big chunk of your income, providing a roof and food and all that kind of stuff. Um, but she got there just through plotting. So I guess I've seen plenty of cases of people who do get there with what you would probably call average incomes. I think when you get towards that point where, um, you're in financial stress. Look, savings an unreasonable ask. So please, if anyone's listening and they're in that situation, don't beat yourself up. One day you'll have more money, then save. Um, but if you can get that habit in there, you'll be grateful later. I think. I think even if you right now uh, 
like thickness and you're like, I, what, where am I supposed to put money? I, I think it's a good thing to, to really start thinking about and to start thinking about, you know, concepts like minimum viable life and like what you actually need and what would actually need to change. If you want if, if you wanted to save more, what would need to change, whether it be yeah. income or spending or whatever, there's always different levers you can pull. Now I want to just throw a little curveball in here. How do you, how how do you or do you have any advice or how do you navigate the the dichotomy of mortality? And I'll I'll, ex, I'll explain that right because there's I know in me in my twenties I was like I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. Like what's the like I'm just I'm here I'm living I'm 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 redlining I'm like going I'm going all the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was always like the future just felt so distant and far away. Now you started investing mm-hmm. when you were nineteen. Um, that was 19 years ago. How long did it take you to, so that was what, 11, 12 years for you to get? 12 years of investing really. Yeah. I think I was 31 when I hit my target income. Yeah. So, awesome. um, yeah, so it was, and like remembering that I had a really good income when I finally got into the workforce, right? So that's why the speed was there and I had good timing as well. So I had the, the this coalescence of that, but I totally get your sense of, um, it's a tension, right? You could go under a bus tomorrow. Well, totally. And if someone's like, what was like, the point? What was totally, the point? And if, some, if someone's like 35, if yeah. they're like 40 and they're like, okay, I haven't done anything, right? I haven't done anything. Yeah. And I'm starting from essentially zero. I've earned, I've earned and spent all the money I've ever made. And I'm starting basically from zero. What They might go, man, like it, it might take me 20 years. And let's just say mm. they're 35. It's going to take them to their... 55 and they and they yeah. might be thinking like is that really how i want to spend my like do you have any kind of yeah how do you balance that that psychology mm. have you got any advice for people to try and overcome yeah. that balance yeah well look i think the mention you made of the minimum viable life we get used to a quality of life but it doesn't actually impact our happiness long term you know you gave mm. a really good example then you're happy in the first month the six months down the tracks so you're you're exactly the same level of happiness right like <laughs> Nothing really changed. You just increased your costs. That's a really hard thing for people to grasp because it's not how our society is marketed to us. We, we get messages all the time that more will make you happy. And if you could just upgrade your house or upgrade your car or get that better job, then you would be happy. And that's bullshit. <laughs> Excuse me for swearing on your podcast. But hey, go, go for it. It's, it's not true, right? We know this. And I guess yeah. I had that experience of getting to a peak of like, I thought, oh, I finally got to this point in my career and it was awful. <laughs> you know, like, it was nowhere near what I thought it was going to be. That's what happened. Will you? Um, spoiler alert for my TEDx talk, um, as well as a couple of other life things. And I guess <clears throat> a couple of things I add to this, which are quite interesting. One's a while ago. So my sister took her own life in 2009 and I had a very strong moment of, wow, life is short. You know, like I know she chose to go, but to leave at 24 and like I just think about all the things she missed, right, like all the incredible things she missed. And you do have that. You have to keep that front of mind because you don't, there's no, and I've got one here just as a demonstration because it doesn't work, there's no crystal ball. Um, You'll never know. You won't be able to be like, oh, I'm going to die when I'm 72 years old. You know, nothing like that. And so... You have to kind of balance that knowing that you don't know with also having fun in the meantime. That's why I think prioritization is actually the key here, guys. It's not um, it's not about uh, having this amazing everything, this vision that you've been sold is, is going to make you happy. What will make you happy and what are the few things? Because there's probably only a few things that you need to feel comfortable um, and then making sure what you do with your time is the thing that makes you happy. Um, that's, I guess, what I've found. And... It is a balance. And I think if people are worried about speed, the thing you won't know, again, that crystal ball, there's no such thing for investing. You actually don't know how long it will take you to get there. So, you know, for, for Fran and I, my mum and I, um, you know, it took Fran 14 years, took me 12 years. Um, it, it probably, with Fran's income, should have taken a lot longer, you know, on average if you'd done the scenarios, but she just happened to catch a boom, you know, mm-hmm. and she didn't know that was coming. <laughs> so she had good timing. Boom. Um, she did both. She did property and shares and now she sells options against her shares and um, spends a lot of time investing. So, um, yeah, she but she did have uh, she did start with shares. That was her first one, whereas I started with property. So mm. she bought like $1,000 worth of Suncorp shares when they were an IPO. <laughs> so, um, you know, stuff like that. Awesome. Um, you, you don't know how long it's going to take. But the fact is that time is going to go. If you, if you remain alive, if you get to 55 and you haven't done any of that prep work, how are you going to feel then? Like, are you going to sit yeah. there and go, Oh my gosh, I wish, like you mentioned it before, I wish I'd known compounding when I was 20. Like, what would you give for a time machine to go back and tell 20 year old you, compounding? Oh my God, that'd be worth it. Exactly. Millions. Exactly. (laughs) And so, 
So that time is going to go and that's that's life, right? That's the tension of life. Okay, and so I'll share something that's happening at the moment in my life. My mother um, has been diagnosed with a relapse of lymphoma. It's really serious. She would be dead by now if she hadn't had chemo over the last um, nine weeks. It's, it, it's crazy intense. But the fact that I am financially independent means that I've been able to drop everything. My husband is into month 15 of a mini retirement, so I can just walk out of the house and leave him with the kids to look after them during the day and I just come back in the evening. But because I'm financially independent, I've been able to take it to every appointment hold a hand. I've been here to nurse for her, you know, like all that stuff. There are things like that that are going to happen in your life and waiting until they happen, that's too late. You yeah. have to have it. You have to have some preparation for those days. You have to have some of that as well as some joy. So the recipe for everybody's going to be different, but if you just spend everything, you will kick yourself in 20 years time. You'll be really annoyed with yourself. So don't let that happen. <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. Um, how's Fran going, by the way? Is she right? She's good. Yeah. So look, it's, um, she had lymphoma in 2017. This is a relapse. So she's a poor woman. She got told, um, when she got the all clear in 2017 that she was, you know, 97.5% chance of a full cure. So she's the unlucky one in 40 that it's come back for. So she's pretty pissed off, um, about that. Um, and the chemo has been absolutely brutal. And you can imagine during a pandemic, uh, I'm just so glad I'm in Perth because I can still see my children while looking after her. Yeah. Um, Oh, I've never been so grateful. That's just luck that I'm here, right? Um, and that she's here too. But um, she's recovering well from the chemo. We'll have, she has her scan today where they give her the radioactive stuff and they tell you what's happened to the cancer. So we'll find out next week what the prognosis is and we've got all fingers crossed because her awesome. lymphoma uh, symptoms have disappeared. So Fingers yeah. crossed <laughs> on this side as well. I hope, I hope she... Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so you mentioned there uh, mini retirements. So mm -hmm. your husband, he's mm -hmm. still... Still technically in the workforce? Yeah. So he and I, so first of all, so I'm, I've already mentioned my age. I'm 38. He's yep. 43, right? And we do have young kids, um, you know, like kindy primary school sort mm -hmm. of age. And, um, you know, he loves working for someone. He's not an entrepreneurial type. He's, mm. he's not interested in businesses. He doesn't like uncertainty. So we're also both engineers and I'm the least risk averse in the relationship. So um, it's pretty funny. Uh, we're a good balance. But he's the sort of person who, when I met him, he was saving everything in cash because <laughs> he didn't want to risk it <laughs> in shares and property. So that gives you a bit of an insight. But um, what he does and what works well for him is to take a job that really suits our lifestyle um, and work in it for you know, a year or two and then he'll have a break. So he had a, he had a year up in 2017. And then went back to a role and he picked a role which included shift work, but the roster was, this is fabulous, two days on, two nights on, and then six days off. And he got to still live at home. He didn't have to fly away. So he would work for, you know, like four shifts and then it would be six days break. So um, he still wanted to work to keep his skills up because if you have long career gaps, it's harder to get back in the workforce. And you'd be amazed how much harder it is for a man. I've been surprised about this. If I've got a career gap, no one questions it. They just go, oh, she's probably having babies. Adam has a career gap and they're like, what have you been doing? Why did you have that time off? It's really interesting. So he didn't want to let his skills lapse. So he keeps going back to work periodically, picking jobs that he thinks he might like. Um, you know, we're often taking, I mean, this last job, he went like three levels lower than he was in the previous job so that he didn't have as much stress and didn't tell them he was an engineer. <laughs> so, um, you know, stuff like that. He picks jobs that he thinks will keep him in the industry. But um keep him uh, happy and, and give him something else as well because, you know, the monotony can be a bit boring. So his mini retirements have been being at home with our kids, but we've also taken mini retirements when we were both working pre-kids where we'd take six months off and we'd go live somewhere else. So, you know, a mini retirement can be whatever you like, but the theory is that you get a break from that alarm clock really, um, that yeah. you get an extended period because two weeks, I don't know about you, by the end of a two-week holiday, I'm only just relaxing. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, to totally, totally. Mini retirement sound awesome. Where's, where's the, so when did you take your first mini retirement and how many, yeah. many, how many mini retirements did you take? How do you define a mini retirement, right? How many mini uh -huh. retirements did you take before you, before you really fully retired? Yeah, right. So uh, almost all of my mini retirements were before. So first of all, I'll just put one exclusion. I had 18 months off with my first child mm -hmm. and I don't consider that a mini retirement. I anyone who's had either. kids, <laughs> Yeah, anyone who's had kids, especially little kids with yeah. a lack of sleep, that was like, uh, you know, I loved it, but far out, it's not a mini retirement. So I think actually all of my mini retirements happened pre-kids and actually that means they were before I was financially independent, right? Um, and my first one, again, this is me just doing an idea and then finding out there's a name for it. I didn't know it was called a mini retirement when we took three months off. I'd had this health crisis and 
um, experienced having, you know, feeling really ill five weeks in bed, didn't think I was going to get better. You know, that horrible, if anyone's ever had it, it's incredibly scary the first time that you realize you're mortal and um, that your body won't just keep going if you don't treat it well. And so Adam and I had decided to reward ourselves with three months off backpacking around South America. And, um, and I, I later read Tim Ferriss's book before our work week in which he talks about mini retirements. That's where the term comes from. Mm-hmm. People might call them sabbaticals, you know, in the yep. olden days. Still do, I guess. It's a very common term in academia. And um, we had gone overseas and had a great time and I came back and I went into this job that I'd been working at in the same company for several years and had said to them, that was awesome. I want to do more of that. And they were like, oh, no, no, you've had your big break. <laughs> you and Adam have had your time off. You can't have big breaks like that again. Um, that's not feasible. And so that was when I started thinking, how do I make this part of my life? And so I ended up leaving the company and doing contract work and I would take contracts um, April to October, and then I would have the summer off. Um, and I did that for three years. And I think I ended up in total, because I had one block work in the middle, there was five mini retirements. All of them were between three and six months long. Um, my favourite ones were actually not where we went travelling. I mean, South America was amazing and um, we did all the good stuff, you know, snorkeling at Galapagos Islands. We went to Carnival and Rio. We did all the fun stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed the ones where I went and lived in a really sleepy village over here in WA called Busselton, which is down near Margaret River, right near the wine region, and it's like a retirement village and we just lived the beach life, learned to cook, exercise, and um, had a great time. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That yeah. sounds great. That sounds fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. So let's let's get let's get stuck into some mechanics then. Okay. So mm-hmm. so what we've we've talked about so far, obviously a fair bit of your journey. We've got a little context now around, okay, cool. People get got the idea uh, around reassessing expenses, investing, all of that kind of stuff. Now, in your book, you one of the reasons I like this book actually is because it's non-dogmatic. Right, and and I really. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so, glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've read I've read a lot of uh, well, I've read a lot of books, but there's there's some books out there. I mean, you might say something like Barefoot Investor, but that's very it's very dogmatic in it. It's like you do everything like this. This is how it's, it's a recipe, done. right? Recipes. Yeah, it's, it's, we it's, love it's, recipes. Yeah, <laughs> totally. One of the things yeah. I like about uh, about Money School, the book, though, is that it it just talks about everything as it is. And it goes, okay, cool. You, you know, you can do this or not do this. And this is kind of how it works. And this is what you should look out for. And this is what, what I want to get into though is, is what do you, for someone starting out or maybe so like, obviously we, a lot of our audience are property investors. Um, so there's good synergy there, but I mean, let's talk about what do you think are the best types of assets to invest in? Why, where have you had the most success? Mm-hmm. Look, I've built the most equity quickly in property. Um, the shares, it's kind of like a slow burn for me because I go with very, I'm very lazy with shares. I want things I don't think about. So I don't, you know, gamble on things that might grow quickly. I tend to pick blue chip or index fund type things. And so those are very slow, steady growth. So they're great if you don't want to think much and you don't want to have any, you know, uh, extra work, right? I have found property is a bit of extra work, but it's also the place where you get the quickest capital growth. That's what I've been fascinated by. Mm. And then you might find you have periods where you get no capital growth. Like at the moment, if you bought a property last year, you'd be possibly quite miserable in Perth. Um, And in fact, any time in the last few years, because we've had very slow growth. So timing does matter, I think, with these decisions. Um, I'm not saying you can time the market, but I do think you have to think about the context when you're picking an asset. Um, but of course, when I look at what's happening now, this is the kind of environment in which I bought my first property, a fairly depressed market with not a great outlook and low interest rates. Um, the difference was, of course, I knew that I was going to have a career that had a lot of demand and I have a good income. So I was quite happy taking the risk of debt um, because I was like, well, even if it's empty, I'll still be able to cover that mortgage. I'm not worried. Um, so I think that still holds true. And who knows how long it's going to be till it turns around, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows how long it's going to be till we see another uplift? And, and there's so much disparity between the cities in Australia now too. I don't know if it was so much when I was younger. I haven't researched it enough. But it feels like Sydney and Melbourne have really separated from the pack um, over the last 10 years, possibly even longer. Um, so, you know, you've got to think about where you are thinking about investing as well. But I still, so many fortunes have been made of property. So much security has come from property. So many people still need to rent a home, I I feel like that's not going to go away. (laughs) So the fundamentals are still, I think, strong um, for property. And it is somewhere where I, because I am quite secure and I have a nice big cash buffer, I would still be looking at investing property now. I'm not actually worried. If you were young, you didn't have much capital behind you, 
um, and you were worried about your income, you might be more hesitant to take on debt. And that's when something like shares or bonds lets you take a little bit of capital and invest, but you're not risking the debt. So you might might be slower, but you still get that compounding effect. So that can work for everybody. It's really about your personal situation, where you're looking at and, and what you want to do. Because I guess I think about property, I have an agent, but I still get calls. You know, there's still things with body corporate. There's still repairs that need mm. approval. You still have a little bit of work to do, but I think it's well worth it for the capital growth I've enjoyed out of it. Um, and I don't think it's going to ever stay flat forever. Like it's just that's not how an economy works. You know, we're, we're eventually going to um, see growth again. It's just about when. Totally. <laughs> and I'm I mean, happy to wait. <laughs> totally. I mean, there's markets right now which are absolutely going off. Like, you know, yeah, it re- exactly. and, it, and it really is an interesting uh, discussion. I would I would say that, um, you know, I'll, I'll publicly state it. I think Perth's, uh, Perth and the WA market is – from everything that I can see right now, is is looking to come good pretty pretty soon, and and I think it's very it's very much helped um, by the fact that the borders are shut. So there's like the coronavirus impact has been significantly dampened in WA, and I think there's a there's yeah. a an, e- an interesting little storm brewing over there, which I think is going to uh, see some good results. But you spoke about growth there quite a lot. Mm. You can't take uh, you can't take equity to the shops though. So <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> what about cash flow? Well, I, this is the thing I guess people always get nervous about. Oh, what if what if interest rates go up? What if that look as um, as we grow, as capital grows, the rent that comes in grows, right? Mm. Like they they are not directly you know proportionally linked all the time, but they're in that range. You know, you don't see a property price go up and the rent stay the same for long. Um, that's just not what happens. It's usually so, the other way around. Rents go up and then prices go up. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly because people go, oh, now it's more expensive to rent than it is to own. So I'm going mm-hmm. to now own, and then you see that swing back and forth, right? And so um, the rents go up, and the rent is where you get your income from, right? So long as you're paying down the debt, there's no point. Like I talk to people about negative gearing. Look, negative gearing is a wonderful bonus, but it's not a good reason to buy property, right? The goal for me with property, and for anyone if you're trying to derive an income out of it is to, uh, you know, as opposed to selling it and taking the capital gains, you know, um, if you're trying to get rent as your income, you want to pay down the debt because then more of that rent lands in your pocket, right? And every time you've got debt, you're paying more to the bank. So um, you're paying more than the sticker price, right? So I think if people focus, if they've got an interest in financial independence as that idea of a cash flow, property where you still continue to pay down the debt and therefore get the cash flow, that cash flow continues to increase as rents go up. Um, and it's the same with dividends, right? It's always expressed as a percentage because it's about the capital value versus how much cash flow comes out. So if you can get a reasonable return as a percentage on your asset, then it still meets the definition of what you'd need to reach fire or fitter. So I think, yep. you know, it still works, right? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Leverage is a really interesting thing because I was looking at I was, mm. I was actually, actually, it's so funny because I've been reading, I've been reading Money Score, and I'll read about two pages, and then I'll be like, and I'll, my brain will start, you know, going all over the place. So I was looking up bond yields. I was reading oh, a yeah. section about bonds, and I was like, yeah, what are the bond yields at the moment? And then I was comparing yeah. that with property yields and all of that kind of stuff. And, and on a percentage yeah. basis, on a percentage basis, they're they're quite similar. The thing, obviously, yeah. with property is you get a lot of leverage, so you're expanding that potential, and you might have, oh, exactly, as, yeah. as opposed to getting a, I don't know. Uh, as opposed to taking a hundred thousand dollars and buying a hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds and getting, I don't know, let's say one percent net yield, mm. which is cool, which is great. Yeah. If you get what if you spend that on a five hundred thousand dollar property and get one percent net yield, that's that's going to be five times as much, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you get all the gain and you also get all the capital growth. So the yeah. risk that comes with the debt is that you know the property value goes down. That's fine. But yeah, you do get leverage, and that's why people build that equity quickly. You know, and it's about yeah. getting into the market before it goes up. You know, it's no point going, oh, well, the market's gone up now. I'm ready to buy the property. Yes, you've been paying off debt, but we're hoping that it's growing at a higher rate than what you're yeah. paying off. And so, yeah, I think that's that. It is compounding with leverage. It's the one area where I'm comfortable with leverage. I, I have never been comfortable with margin loans for shares, mm. um, things like that. Those things feel too risky to me. I, you know, I joke about me being on the other end of the spectrum. If there's a spectrum of risk averse, like my husband is like, absolutely not. And I'm somewhere down here, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, it's one of those things. So I, I don't like things like margin loans because I think that's quite risky. Yeah, um, I, think it's, I with, agree. I agree. I'm yeah. like, uh, nah, I'm okay. Yeah. Whereas with property, I always announce that there's an old adage, you know, that you can always sleep in it. Someone always needs to rent it. And yeah. I guess I, I have tended to buy um, properties that are more towards the bottom of the market because someone always needs to rent those. Um, whereas when you buy something big and palatial, you know, that might be where you get higher vacancy rates. But 
um, I've focused more on the rental viability than I have on the land value in it, to get that sort of thing. But I think a lot of people would be focused much more on getting really good land value that's going to escalate quickly. Um, and then, yeah, you, you do get all the growth. Um, yeah. And that's why you want to pay down the debt quick uh, because then that equity is bigger. So totally. It's actually, it's actually got a, it actually has like a, and like a, it's, I can't remember what the ratio is, but it's, there's an exponential difference. If you, if you just got the capital growth and just took the, if you just say paid interest only, for example, versus mm. if you um, pay down the, pay down the debt at the same time, it actually multiplies the, the capital growth. It's not just as simple as like, well, I paid mm. down $10,000 worth of debt. And so I have $10,000 more equity. There's actually yeah, a, no. there's a, there's a, an asymmetrical return that happens when you pay down the debt at the same time. Exactly. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It is pretty yeah, cool. it's pretty sweet. And if you can harness that, you know, yeah. you're way ahead of the game. And that's why I think I look at so many people, whenever you look at the, you know, they used to do the Business Review Weekly Rich List, mm. something like half of those people built their original equity from property investing. It's just, it's a fundamental thing. I get really frustrated when people talk about, uh, don't do property investing, don't believe anyone who says, oh, it's going to double every 10 years. That's not why we buy. We buy for the leverage. Yeah. <laughs> because you put down a small amount, but you get all that growth. Um, and it's still a fundamental fact that we need to live somewhere. Human beings need to live somewhere. So I, I feel like it's got good fundamentals. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like the reality yeah. is you can get, you know, it's it's not unreasonable to get uh, 30% internal rate of return or a cash on cash return in six six months or so in property if you buy well and do all the right stuff versus, you know, 6% in 12 months in shares and stuff like that. So you've got to weigh all that stuff mm. up. Here's an yeah. interesting little thing for you though. You mentioned there in the rich list, yeah, half of them made all their money in, in property. Do you know Arnold Schwarzenegger? Arnold Schwarzenegger was a bricklayer and became a millionaire in real estate before he ever did any kind of acting or anything like that. Really? That's pretty cool. That is I'm not surprised, cool. but it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He moved to California yeah. with a gym bag, got a job as a bricklayer and then started yeah, right. making money investing in property, became a millionaire and then then kind of started going on his, uh, I guess, whole, you know, and, you know, his whole journey there in, in, in that. So, okay. Yeah, wow. Tell me then. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> it is. I found it fascinating. I was listening to it on the yeah. podcast the other day. So, okay, cool. So, how do you, do you, do you think yield's more important than growth or growth's more important than yield then? <sighs> this is such a tough question. I think they're important at different times. So, when I started investing, growth was more important because I wanted to build capital and have my money working for me in that respect. And the passive income was incidental and just went back into more investing. Now that I'm at the point of uh, that tipping point of, you know, when you're at financial independence, the yield is more important. The reliability of the yield is more important for me. So I think it changes. When you're in that accumulation phase though, I think it, it would be a mistake to sacrifice growth for more passive income if you didn't need it. You know, like if you're, if you're happy to work and you're able to work and you had a job, um, then you don't need the passive income. You're better off chasing something that's going to build your equity quickly to give you more passive income when you want it, you know. Um, that's just my take on it. I think it's different for everybody though. Um, but I would never buy an asset that had zero prospect of capital growth. Like I, I no. think that would be silly, right? You're going backwards then. So yeah. you've got to at least take it into account. Totally, 100%. Yeah, so we, we, one of the things we look for in all the properties that we buy, you know, with our clients and everything like that is we're looking for positive cash flow and strong capital growth, which is yeah. kind of like the hard thing to find, right? But if you can get both, like if you can get a 6% yielding property that's going to go up in value in the next 12 months as well, it's like... Then oh, you get it's gold. Total yeah, gold. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the yeah. secret source. So what's the yeah. biggest mistake you've made then? What's, what, kind of, what kind of things, if you could go back, would you change? Did you make any investing mistakes? Did you... Oh, plenty. Did you so many yourself? Oh, yeah. Heaps of times I've, I've copped up a lot. Um, that's inevitable, by the way. And, and I think it's okay. The ones I don't beat myself up about are investing mistakes. So, like, I bought a property without enough due diligence and we made effectively a loss on it. I mean, it looks like a gross profit when you just do the straight numbers, but it was a, it was a, a net loss. Um, and so, I, I, get an, I'm an, I, I think I learned a lot from that. Um, mm. But because it was, like, my fifth property, it didn't sidetrack me too much. It was a small blip. Um, so I'm glad I made that mistake then. I think making those mistakes that I made with my first property, which by the way, settled for $103,500, like tiny. Um, I made plenty of mistakes with that, but much better than making them on the $500,000 property, right? <laughs> so yeah. um, I don't beat myself up about those. The things I get really angry with myself about are consumer mistakes. So I bought timeshare when I was 21 and every year that the maintenance bill comes in, 
it's a reminder what an idiot I was. So for all the thanks to past Lacey, I go, 21-year-old Lacey, what were you thinking? <laughs> Where's the timeshare? <laughs> yeah. Where's the timeshare? Uh, it's, it's in, I don't know if I should name them, but it's one of those ones where you buy um, into a, like a series of hotels and then you've got an equivalent amount of points that you spend each year and you can go anywhere to those. Sounds so awesome. In, yeah, look, I use it. I use it. I get my value out of it. I use it because I'm like, I better freaking get value out of this. Um, and it is convenient for my family, the ones that we've chosen. But I do look at it and go, what was I thinking? Like, the math looked so good on paper when I was talking to a salesman. Um, by the way, who was my stepfather. That's part awesome. of the reason. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal salesperson. Um, <laughs> and, and it's really been an education for me about how sales works. And so now I'm much less likely to fall into those sales traps. I will never sign anything on the first date now. Um, you know, all those sorts of things. It, it's a small proportional lesson to have learned, but it's one of those, it's definitely a buyer's regret one for me. So it, because the maintenance bill comes in every year, that's the one I most regret because every year I see it and I go, oh, Bastards. Oh, you idiot, Lacey. What were you thinking? <laughs> so, yeah. It's a reminder not to get too cocky. It's good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, tell me then, like now that you've, now that you've, you've, you've traversed this journey and, and, uh, and now you're in a position where you can help other people do that too. Tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about money school and, and, uh, what's the, as, as you pointed out, you know, you're the entrepreneurial one in the relationship. You started the, you started your business at 10, right? It's the first business mm. at 10. Tell us about Money School. What's the mission there? What are you trying to achieve? So Money School is really that, you know, you talked about, I wish I knew about compounding interest when I was 20. I don't want that to happen to anybody. I want everybody to walk out of school knowing about compound interest and knowing how bad debt works and knowing their investing options. I think it's an absolute travesty that I can talk to a 16-year-old who doesn't know what compounding interest means or doesn't understand what bad debt is. It's an embarrassment for us as a nation. I think our PISA financial literacy scores are atrocious. They should be so much higher. We are such a wealthy country. There's no good reason for this. Um, and I guess that's what drives me is this idea of how are there kids still that don't know this stuff? And I think back to how I learned. And obviously I learned because my mum planted a few seeds. Look, there's lots of coaching. She's held my hand along the way. You know, when I went to buy that property, she helped me navigate all of that. Um, not every parent can do that. So how can we make it so that every child has access to that knowledge? Because the difference between me knowing that when I came out of school and starting investing, it's meant the, like, the life of difference. My peers who I went to school with still have car loans, still don't own assets, have no prospect of financial independence until they reach pension age. And it, like we had very similar demographics, very similar family values. It's, it's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. I hate it. <laughs> and so that's where Money School started. And I guess when I had one of my first mini retirements, of free thinking time. Don't get a lot of that as an engineer. Um, and I started, that was 10 years ago, started thinking about how would I teach kids, you know, about this stuff. And my first thing was a self-published kids book about saving like six to eight year olds. Awesome. And that was my first sort of like dabble in it. And so every time I take a mini retirement, I do a bit more work about collating how I thought about it and people would get me to teach them, you know, like my, cause my friends were going, how come you don't have to go back to work? How come you can do this? And I would, <laughs> so I'd be like, well, I got taught about this stuff. How did you not learn about this? And they'd be like, well, mum and dad don't know. They still like, and a lot of them, their parents don't know this stuff still, totally. you know, their parents are going to be on pensions. Um, their parents are renting, <laughs> you know, like imagine being in your sixties and not having housing security. Um, but they just think that's normal. So, you know, it's been one of those things where, um, being able to, to help them help me build a curriculum. And then I was 18 months into my time off with my first child. Um, so that was like mid-2014. And my mum called me and she was like, I can hear how bored you are, Lacey. You need to go back to work. I'm coming over. And she moved over to Western Australia, <laughs> which is a massive thing, right? Because um, uh, she then was watching my daughter while I started to build up money school. That's when I really got into it in earnest in about mid-2014 and started focusing more on how to – I was interested initially in teaching parents how to teach their kids about money because look the education system is one option but um you can't test a lot of stuff i don't know about you but i find values is much more important than the maths yeah. maths is pretty basic it's actually about what kind of investments suit you what your risk tolerance is and i think that's better learned at home so i worked on building a curriculum for parents to teach their kids about money so they could do it themselves and um, suddenly my most common client became a 40-year-old woman who had that aha moment and went, oh, my God, I can't work forever <laughs> uh, without kids and they wanted me to teach them. And money school's kind of grown from there. So I've ended up doing um, a lot of consulting for local and state governments and delivering educational seminars and that kind of stuff. 
mm-hmm. um, and then have online courses because that's easy because, you know, I had a second child and I was like, I can't go and teach people in person all the time. We better do something. And then, yeah, Penguin approached me about the book. Um, so really, they the came book to is you. They approached you, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had no idea how rare that was. But wow. yeah, you know, it was hilarious. So the day I got the offer to do the TEDx talk, it was the same day Penguin Random House sent me an email through my contact form and I thought it was Sam because <laughs> um, I thought that can't be right. Um, but, yeah, it turned out they wanted me to write the book and so, yeah, that's how it ended up happening. So, yeah, what a gift, right, like to have that's that money awesome. in your life. I know, and the fact that I was financially independent, I mean, I could afford the time because it's a big commitment <laughs> um, to write and edit a book. Uh, but I'm so lucky I had the time to do it and totally. that someone was willing to pay me to do it. So, yeah, it was awesome. So that's how it's ended up. Yeah. Nice. I actually wrote my first book this year. It's called oh, Limitless. Yeah, the Renegade's Guide to Building Wealth Through Property. And I can, yeah, I can oh, tell exciting. you, it's, it's it was a lot of work. It's a lot of oh. work. Nerve wracking. You know, you're putting pen to paper, and you're like, oh my god. I, I don't know about you, but I was like, what yeah. if people judge me on the things that I've written in there? And oh my god, there's so much. Yeah. And at a certain point, you've just got to go. It's out into the world, and and off we go. So yeah, and every point of view adds. This is what I think. I, the idea of I really rebelled about this idea and we talked about the recipes that you're going to read one book and it's going to have the solution like, and that you're just going to follow it like a recipe blindly for the rest of your life. I don't think that's the right thing to do. The more points of view we have out there, the better it is for people to test them and go like, oh, yeah, that works for me. I like that bit. I don't like that bit. You know? You've got to really get into it. So I think the more people who put those views out there, yep. like you're going to change the world through it, Goose. You're going to do an amazing oh, thing. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, no, so I'll send you a copy actually. Look, I, I, couldn't, I, I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's... I think, yeah, I think, I think one of the biggest problems that people have got is they think they think with blinkers on, and they need to actually, they need to just go, okay, give me, give me everything, give me everything, and let let me percolate it, and let me let me soak in it, steep in it like a hot bath, and then just kind of see what see yeah. what comes out of that, and find out what's good. So exactly, um, and pick the bits that work for you because it's not going to work for everybody, right? Some things you're going to read and you're going to go. That's not for me, um, and that's okay. <laughs> but it's also really it good to know. It's also really yeah. good to know about because you can you can understand it. And you can ha- you can get your head around yeah. it as well. So exactly, yeah. Okay, so now that you've done all this, how do you how do you define success? Where where are you going? Like, what's where, what is your what's on your vision board? How are you going to know when you've you've made it? It's, it's yeah. So this is. This is such a pivotal point for me. So my mum is my business partner, right? Like mm. she founded the business with me and we've actually got two businesses because people started me to te- asking me to teach their kids directly and so now I do a really like a covert way of doing that. I teach them how to start a business and then once they've got the money in their hand, I teach them about money. Yes. Um, and they save, they save. It's, it's like a silver bullet for financial capability because when you're 10 to 12 years old, you don't get a lot of money and I've got these kids, like some of them earn two grand a year, they save it. When I teach them theoretical saving, they like mod and they're like 30% of them get it. When they have the cash in their hand, like more than 80% of them save it. So I feel like it's a silver capability thing. But I have been ended up with two businesses. And um, I, because I really like the flexibility of my lifestyle, I've been able to just like drop everything and look after mum. I don't want to grow them to empires. It's not my goal. Um, but I really believe in the mission. So I guess at the moment, especially with my mum being unwell and she's 70 and she does this for fun, you know, like, she enjoys coming to seminars and she's an accountant, right? So she's a tech, technical expert whenever I do financial stuff. When people have got superannuation questions, I'm like, talk to Fran. Um, she does a great job. And, um, but that's, of course, changing with her health. You know, she's not really keen on doing that. So I've got to really think about what I'm going to do. And I guess I'm interested in how I can collaborate with people in the same space and grow something bigger than money school. Um, you know, so I've, you know, I've started connecting with all these amazing financial educators and authors in Australia and trying mm. to, like, let's build a movement. Like, I know Barefoot's got a money movement, but I really want to see something with like everybody involved that we all, yeah. you know, we all contribute, you know, have all these points of view. So I guess I'm um, not sure what it's going to look like, but I'm pretty convinced my next couple of years are going to be about how do we bring lots of people into the story? How do we, how do we catch the attention of these people who aren't thinking about money, but really should be? And, and how do we all work together? So I don't know what it's going to look like yet, but it's going to be fun. Sounds it sounds it sounds great. sounds great. If there's anything I can do to help, I'm, I, I'm, I'm there. So Awesome. Now, cool. We're we're pretty much at that point now where we're going to wrap it up. Is there anything else that you want to share with anyone before um, before we call it quits for today? Um, though there'll be a sense of I can't do this. It's always the way people think. Oh, it's just beyond my reach. Start small. Just start small. Just do something. Um, and, and you know, I think I think a lot of people get a lot more inspiration from my mother than they do from me. You know, someone who started investing at forty nine. It's never too late, guys. It's never too late to start teaching your kids about money. It's never too late to start having those little chats and planting those little seeds. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to start. So 
So please don't sit there thinking, I can't do this. Uh, it's beyond me. I'm just going to give up. Even a little bit is going to make a big difference. So just get started. Pick something that you do want to talk about and go from there. Totally. And if you are interested in trying to work it out and if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, hang on, what do I do next and how do I get some more information about this? You can head to moneyschool.org.au. That's Lacey's website. There's a whole bunch of really great resources there. I was having to play around with the financial independence calculator the other day. I hope that I stuffed it up because it told me I was going to be 211 when it, before I got to it. So I was like, okay, I think I put something, I put in some wrong details in there. Um, but I'm, I'm going to see that answer. That's classic. <laughs> I was like, what? I, I was really just testing out the functionality of it, but I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, that was. Hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not. That's not possible. Yeah, I'm not going to have a look at that. I would have thought we put a limit on that. I thought we put a limit, but never mind. All good. I'll go and check that out now. Thank you. Yeah, it's like <laughs> 20 in the year 2197 or something like that. I'm going to finally, Aww. and it was, it was great. Yeah. The report was like, oh, it doesn't look like you're going to make it by retirement age. And I was like, <laughs> ah, I'm never going to make it. Anyway, that's by the by. Everyone can go there and check it out. Lacey, I've really enjoyed the conversation and just thanks for, thanks for um, everything you put out there. I mean, it's been impactful for me to read the book and to interact with you prior to this conversation. And this, this interaction has just helped to solidify all of that kind of stuff. So thanks for bringing value to me and also bringing value to our audience as well. Thanks for having me, Goose. I've loved it. Absolute pleasure. Speak soon.